might all have perfect love, this doctrine of Christian perfection. It's something that we are uh, understandably challenged by. I told you when I started this series that I didn't know how it was going to turn out either because I'm trying to wrap my mind around the idea of perfect love. Last week we got a little closer and I gave you this formula with the help of Adrian, our director of youth ministries and services because she was kind enough to help me draft a formula that we'll look at here for a second. So Here's the formula, reduced self divided by time plus the Holy Spirit equals perfect love. So if you're trying to attain perfect love in your heart for God and others, then the first thing you do is reduce the amount of energy and effort you put into self-serving thoughts and deeds. And if you do this consistently over time with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will attain and achieve Christian perfection or perfect love. Now, perfection in the human sense is something that we just can't buy. It's something that we're so sure is impossible that it probably makes it difficult that I even brought the subject up. I have thought since I started this series that there must be people out there thinking, seriously, perfect all right, first of all, let's just acknowledge that we're hung up on the word perfect, all right? This isn't, this isn't your problem or mine when it comes to the doctrine of Christian perfection as John Wesley. We didn't even think there was a doctrine of Christian perfection. <laughs> Most of us, we didn't know there was such a thing. We've been practicing our faith and our religious activity in this church for 40-something years in a Wesleyan tradition, and we just didn't think much about the idea of Christian perfection. But it's really not the doctrine's fault. It's not John Wesley's fault. It's not the pastor's fault. It's because we're struggling with this concept of perfection. Many of us, as we talked about last week, are a little bit perfectionist. We have this tendency to think that if we don't get it right, somehow we fail And so we're always trying to do everything perfectly, but we know instinctively that there is no such thing as perfect. And that means that we're struggling with this concept, but that, that would be the, 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 the religious activity or the form of godliness that we're talking about. That would not be the power of godliness. And so this Wesleyan concept that we're really visiting might seem on the surface to be about perfect Christianity or perfect love, but it's really about embracing the power of godliness. But what is perfect love and can it even be accomplished? Well, poets have been writing about perfect love for generations and generations and generations. And part of the reason they write about it is because it exists more in poetry and verse and music than it does in reality. And the reality that poets have discovered has also caused them to write many a sonnet about lost love, about broken relationships, about the pain and the grief and the sorrow that comes when we lose love in one way or another. So do the poets write about perfect love because they believe it's real? I don't think so. But they write about it because... It exists in our imagination. 
Here's the truth that we want to visit today. The most important thing you can take away from this is that perfect love doesn't come from others. It comes from within. And it won't exist within until it's born there, until it's reborn, to put it more specifically. You can't give perfect love or receive perfect love until it's born in you. And it's got to be born of the Spirit. There's the power of godliness. Embracing the inner nature that was born there when you, when you repented of your sin and you completely gave your life to Christ. Then you were born again and born in you was the seeds of perfect love. The, the embryo of perfect love was planted there. It's the spirit of God, the living God in you. And that means that inner serenity, selflessness, confidence, devotion to God and others, all of that is written in the DNA of that infant, that, that tiny little embryo that was born in you when you were born again. And all of that is there because of the timeless, all-knowing God, creator, supreme being, Yahweh, wrote it there in your heart in your very nature. You know instinctively, even if you're not born again, what love is and what it isn't because it was written in your very nature. Unfortunately, your nature is corrupt by sin and this corruption left unchecked can kill love in your heart. And yet that nature is what drives us to protect ourselves from pain. We live in a world that is tainted by sin and therefore there's always pain, there's always suffering. Could we stop for a minute and talk about this pain and suffering for a second? I was talking with my mother-in-law just the other day and you know, it's only been a month since she lost the love of her life for over 47 years. Don't mean to make you cry. It wasn't that long. Longer than that. Tell me how long so I get this right. 57. 57. I was thinking about Sandy Cave. That's what it was. Sandy Cave lost her husband this week. She's one who worships with us often in this service. Her husband of 47 years. So I haven't, well, I did talk to Sandy the other day, but it's still pretty raw. But here's what both have in common, and this is my point the pain is real. And there's no problem with that. You haven't failed because you experience pain. There's nothing wrong with you because you're hurt. There's nothing wrong with you because pain is something you try to avoid. And yet, when we talk about Christian love and perfection and love and all of this, there's a temptation to think that somehow we're supposed to rise to some level where we no longer suffer. Christ had perfect love, didn't he? Jesus had perfect love. Did he suffer? Well, of course, you know he suffered on the cross, but he suffered in other ways too. He grieved when his friend Lazarus was dead four days in the tomb. He grieved over Jerusalem. He, he suffered pain. His heart hurt. 
His emotions were as real as yours and mine, and, and yet he had the perfect love that Wesley desires we should all seek. So pain, let us agree then, is legit and real in all of us, and the fact that we strive to avoid it is understandable and real. So how do we achieve perfect love? if it's almost certain to give us pain, if it's almost certain to cause us to suffer to love. And the answer is that it has to exist within before it can exist without. I love using this quote from the Wizard of Oz, and I've used it often because it is, in my mind, as close to Bible literature as Frank Baum ever got. Because when the wizard told the tin man, the size of your heart, my metal friend, is not measured by how much you love, but by how much you are loved. It turns out that the only way you can be really loved in the way that might feel perfect or near perfect is by giving your own love selflessly. I want to drive you first to the scripture from, I'm jumping ahead here, sorry, but I want to drive you to a scripture from 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verses 16 to 21. I want to use this one first. And I'll come back, Katrina, to that slide. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected within us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 John 4, 16 to 21. Fear is what drives most, if not all, no, I'm just going to correct myself on that, I'm sure. Fear drives all evil. Evil started, you know, Jessica read a passage that I really appreciated because there was a phrase in there. It wasn't the one you were driving at, but there was a phrase in there that resonated with the message I had for today because it said that the devil was the, the commander of the unseen forces of darkness. And this rebellion that was referred to there, that was 1 Corinthians? No, Ephesians, Ephesians. You're, you had Ephesians, I had 1 Corinthians, yeah. That this 
this person, this being that, that authored all the oppression and chaos in the world began because of a fear that somehow allowing Yahweh, the creator, God, to be supreme and to order all things according to his will, that somehow this devil would fear that, that he would be somehow injured by that, that somehow he would be oppressed by that. In other words, he had this oppression in his heart that was, well, his pride. And this pride led him to rebel against God. And that same sense of rebellion, that same pride exists in all of us when we're born, isn't it? It's there. You know, I, I have grandchildren now, and it's changed my life almost as much as having my own children did. And what's really fascinating is to watch my, parent, watch my kids struggle with parenting, Learn, learning you know, how well they got the lessons we tried to impart to them and watching them then return it and watch uh, the whole process is fascinating. And one of the things that's really sad is, is, you know, by the time they're two to three, somewhere between two and four years old, they learn to rebel. And I can see some moms and dads in the room with children, and I know that you have fresh memories of this rebellion. And it's in our nature to rebel, to check the authority of the people that we look to as gods in our lives, as the ones who seem to have all the absolute power and authority over us. And so we just instinctively rebel against them. Where does that instinct come from? What is it? that makes us desire to rebel? And how is it that this separates us from God if not that we have this natural desire to rebel against God? And this is what we call sin. And for some people, that rebellion is entirely about fear. And if you think about all the bad things that have happened just in the last couple of weeks of your life and your communal life around family and this town and wherever you work, and you know, think about all the bad things that have happened, all the negative things that have happened, and you will always find at the root of it a fear. Someone is afraid. They're afraid that their position is at risk. They're afraid that they're authority is in danger they're afraid they're going to lose something they're afraid they're going to suffer pain they're afraid that their happiness is fleeting and it could disappear in a moment fear causes us to do stupid things and behind every stupid thing you've seen in the last few weeks there's a fear you need to recognize that and you need to recognize, as John says to us in his letter, perfect love casts fear out. So you want to stop doing evil. And what is evil? Remember this, right? What is evil? Oppression and chaos. Evil is oppression and chaos. Wherever there is oppression and chaos, there is evil right at the heart of it. If you want to end evil in your own life, if you want to end oppression and chaos in your own life, you have to embrace Christ's love. And it happens when you acknowledge that you are a natural rebeller, that you are in a natural state of rebellion, 
And when you acknowledge that the only way you can start down the path of Christian perfection is to first confess that you are a sinner who is intentionally rebelling against God and unintentionally rebelling against God all the time. And when you admit this and then you seek God's grace, you've done what we talked about a few weeks ago. You've stopped running from God's prevenient grace. God, as Jessica said to you earlier, is running for you. He's running behind you. You can't outrun God's grace, but he won't stop you from running. You have to put on the brakes. You have to stop. And the minute you realize that you can't outrun his grace, but you can neither outrun his perfect judgment, that's when you stop. Thank God that God has good brakes or he would bounce off the back of you. And I imagine God bouncing off the back of you would be a profoundly thunderous experience. But he stops. And you turn and you look in the Lord's grace-filled eyes and you receive redemption through Jesus Christ. And then you're born again. And in this new birth experience, you are implanted with the seed the embryo of perfect love. But that doesn't mean life gets any easier. It doesn't mean that you won't suffer pain. In fact, to a certain extent, suffering pain is part of the process of Christian perfection. It's sort of like the old analogy of making perfect pure gold, right? You've heard this. If you haven't, well, I'm not going to sing the hymn to you today, but my, one of my all-time favorite hymns says that, you know, some of the suffering you go through is because it's the only way your dross can be removed. Dross is the impurity that comes to the surface when you boil silver and gold hot enough so that it can be purified. And so the, the smelter is boiling that perfect pure gold into a state where all the impurities rise to the surface and then they carefully scrape that dross from the top and then they go through the process again and this refinement process results in purity. There has to be pain in order to be perfected. Listen to this passage. This is the one I asked you to look up at the start from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's on page 1157 in the Bible there on your table, page 1157. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I'll talk about what it is in a second. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I content, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Returning to that analogy again of the perfect uh, gold, you realize there's no such thing as pure gold? Because nothing will hold it together. It's not bound together unless it has some imperfection in it because that's what makes it... Uh, 
substance you can actually hold in your hand. So you can only, like if you're wearing a ring that's made of gold, it can't be pure gold or it wouldn't, it wouldn't sustain itself around your finger. It would fall apart because it's just dust. And so you can't be perfect in this life, in this time, without pain and without a certain battle within against certain elements that are required to hold it all together. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. I can't get rid of this thorn in my side. It won't leave me alone. And the Lord says, get used to it. It's part of what I'm doing to perfect you. By the way, a friend of mine and an author that we will have here at Shiloh in August, Frank Viola, is convinced that the uh, thorn in Paul's side was probably a person, a persecutor. He makes a great argument, but that's a discussion for another day. You can ask Frank when he's here in August. But it makes sense because Paul effectively betrayed the people with whom he was most closely associated. And not only that, but betrayed a system that really, really resented his rebellion against them. And so it's perfectly reasonable to assume there's a hater out there that's following Paul everywhere he goes, trying in every way conceivable to undermine him. You watch YouTube lately? There are people out there posting videos with one purpose, and that is to completely and utterly destroy the reputation of somebody they disagree with. Now, for some, it might be Donald Trump, and for some, it might be Joe Biden. It really doesn't matter. They're all doing the same thing. They are bitterly hating a person and doing everything they can think of to be a thorn in their side. So I think it's entirely possible that Frank's right about this thorn in Paul's side. But here's the thing. God says, I'm not going to take that away from you, but I am going to make you better through it and because of it. And if you'll embrace that, you're in the process of being sanctified or perfected. Love, perfect love, starts from within. And it isn't dependent on other people. This is something that is so clear. I mentioned that the poets just a few minutes ago, and poets, you know, have written so much. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has written probably the most famous love line most of us have ever heard. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then there's this equally famous uh, poet who talks about the dread that he feels because love always ends. It always ends. Well, the theme that I want you to take away today that I'd like you to look at on the slide is, is that my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, surrendering your flesh causes that eternal part of you, the soul, to grow. You have to, you have to reject and eject your vanity and your pride and your self-centeredness in order to make room for the Spirit to grow perfect love in you. And this happens most readily and most recognizably in families. 
I know not everybody here is married, not everybody here has children, but for the most part, it is safe to assume that if your spouse, your children, your precious friendships, those most dear friendships, ought to be characterized by your journey of Christian perfection more than in any other aspect of your life. You're not lauded and celebrated authentically by the community for your perfect love if you aren't authentically lauded and celebrated by your family. If your spouse doesn't know that you're on a journey of Christian perfection and that every day you're trying to be more selfless and more devoted to Christ, And you're counting on the Holy Spirit to help you, especially in times of weakness. Now, if anybody should be able to see that, it's your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your precious friendships. And in them, you can see the efficacy of your perfection and the sanctification the Lord is doing in you. They won't remember you for everything you got right or everything you got wrong, but they will always remember you for how much you loved them selflessly. Remember the formula. Selflessness over time, divided by time, with the help of the Holy Spirit, leads to Christian perfection. Christian religion is declining in our country. It's declining even in this community. It is on the decline because Christians haven't embraced the power of godliness. And the power of godliness is most evident in love. And love is selflessness. And selflessness is fearlessness. Fearlessness, right? You will be selfless when you're not afraid of whether you get what you want. When I talk to marriage uh, couples in a pre-marriage setting, when we're talking about what makes for a good marriage, I always tell them this, trust. And they always jump right to the immediate conclusion that it must mean that they won't cheat on each other. And I always just chuckle and say, oh, no. No, if you're thinking that way, you're already in big trouble. No, Christian marriage is built around a love that is seen best in the little things. In the little things. I have a lot of laughs with these couples because I tell the man, if you'll just remember to put the seat down, you will score more points by far. If you won't berate him for every little misstep he makes, it will score more points. It's when you feel the trust that you will be loved unconditionally without any expectation in return that you are growing in love and intimacy. We're declining as Christians in our influence because we don't love very well. Because we lack grace for others. Because we act more out of fear and selfishness than we do out of devotion to Christ who says, 
It is in your weakness that I am made strong in you. It is at the moment when you risk everything that you do the most for the kingdom. The Apostle Paul learned to be content in his weakness. He learned to recognize that the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the calamities were signs that he was on the right path. Are you ready to do that? Here's what I've discovered about perfect love. It is a matter of baby steps. Lots and lots of baby steps and record the progress. My little grandchild, Jane, took some baby steps yesterday between mom and dad and she got two or three steps without holding on to anything and we all celebrated. Because that's how you're supposed to feel about baby steps, right? When's the last time you celebrated your successful baby steps? What if it turns out you can be very, very old and still have room in your life for baby steps towards Christian perfection? And what if all of heaven is rejoicing because you just managed to pull off a couple of impossible baby steps? And maybe ahead of schedule. Who knew? Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Now burn it onto our hearts. Change us forever, I pray. Not by what this broken vessel says, but what you've spoken through me. For your glory, amen.